Hello to all you boys next door, mums and dads, new weds and nearly deads, and welcome to Dangerous Amusements, a podcast where we talk about the music of Elvis Costello. I'm Stu Arrowsmith, and in each episode I'll be joined by a special guest to chat all things Elvis, and I'll be asking them to help me compile the ultimate Elvis Costello playlist. Now remember, don't make any sudden movements, because these are Dangerous Amusements. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by composer, songwriter, and host of my favourite music podcast. Welcome to Dangerous Amusements, Chris Mercer. Thank you, Stu. It's a delight to be here. Oh, it's great to have you on. Thank you so much for doing this. You are speaking to us from the great state of Illinois. Yes, I am coming to you from Chicagoland. I'm here in Evanston, and I've been listening to your show. It's a fantastic show. I'm really enjoying it. And it's such a great forum you've put together uh, to talk about Elvis. No, oh, thank you, Chris. That means a lot, uh, particularly as the host of, as I say, my favorite music podcast as well, which we'll talk about as we go through the episode. So thank you for that. Um, composer as well, songwriter. Have you got anything bubbling away in the background at the moment that you're working on? Uh, I've just put on an album last year called Antihistamine. Strange as that might be. It's a surrealist album, actually. And right now I'm moving in the direction of more improvisation. So I've got several improvisation projects going, uh, one for two keyboards, uh, one where I play trumpet and another guy plays bassoon. Um, In between uh, pop albums at the moment. So yeah, kind of in a little bit of an in-between spot with my work. But the latest album was Antihistamine. It's very strange. And if surrealist pop isn't up your alley, I had the one before that uh, was about Johnny Carson. Yeah. It's an album called More to Come. And it was all about really television and media in this from the 70s through the 90s. Yeah. Oh, there's some really good stuff there, Chris, as well. So if people haven't heard it, they should definitely go and check it out. Now, a lot of people listening in will know you, of course, from your your brilliant show, Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. I've listened and re-listened so many times usually agreeing occasionally disagreeing you're not you don't have to agree (laughs) we never made that demand (laughs) Uh, so that's with you with the very much missed ryan brady and now of course with paul kaminsky um now one name that crops up a lot on the podcast is elvis costello so where when how did his music come into your life so i really uh my heart was warmed by your interview with jason carty because very similar story we're at about the same age and we got into elvis at about the same time for me a couple years before you guys in the summer of 87 no paul mccartney connection there for me when i got into elvis because people didn't even know they were collaborating really yet um so summer of 87 and i was thinking about this a little bit i did talk about it a touch on um now here this episode but i was thinking about it a bit more and thinking about how at the time I got into Elvis, I hadn't heard any Elvis other than every day I write the book. Hmm. And I had been reading, I had Rolling Stone magazine. And as one did in those days, I had my subscription to Rolling Stone, but as one did, you just went to the newsstand and bought whatever music stuff you could and looked for articles by people, you know, or about people that interested you. And so I was reading reviews in Rolling Stone about Elvis and in other magazines about Elvis. And it just sounded right up my alley. All the descriptions I was hearing, even the negative reviews sounded right up my alley. Uh, <laughs> and I thought, this, you know, this, this sounds quite interesting. I like that every day I write the book song, but I don't know what the deal is with this. And it was actually 
my first time going to a recording studio. So I went with my little band. We were 14 years old. In those days, you scrounged up some money and you paid by the hour and you went to a recording studio. Meters running. You better be rehearsed. You know, no, no, let's try something. <laughs> and so we had a stressful day as, as 14 year olds in a recording studio and then went to the record store. And I got two records that day. Uh, one was Best of Elvis Costello and the Attractions. The other was a soundtrack from 2001, A Space Odyssey. Oh, and nice. really talk about two records that kind of set me on my course in life, because a lot of what I do now as a professional comes from hearing Ligeti's music, the really weird music from 2001, um, but also the 20th century classical music in general on that uh, soundtrack. And wow, Best of Elvis Costello and the Attractions. Um, I've said it before, but it's one of those moments where you listen to something and by the time it's over, you really have a different standard. Uh, I had never heard such intricate, dense lyrics before in my life, including John Lennon. Hmm. Uh, I didn't know Bob Dylan yet, and I didn't know Stephen Sondheim yet. So I heard this Elvis Costello um, best of and couldn't believe it. And I uh, spent the whole summer and really the next couple of years really obsessing over Elvis and catching up on all his work. Spike was my first new Elvis album. Okay. So first one I got to, uh, to purchase as it came out. Mm -hmm. And had your McCartney fixation started by that point? So when Spike came out, are you looking at it from both sides by that point? You know, it's interesting because, um, so, we're talking summer, really June 87 is when I picked up that best of. And the previous autumn had been Press to Play. I heard you say that you're a Press to Play fan. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> we, are, we are a put-upon lot, we uh, Press to Play fans. <laughs> I wanted to point out that I got this book. Oh, nice. I don't know if you've checked this out yet. It's, um, it's a kind of unofficial archive edition. Yeah. And, it, and it's a whole booklet devoted to bashing Press press to play oh no it is no i mean the whole there's a big interview with hugh padgham where he just tears into paul and tell, talks about how much he hated working on the album oh, there's all the bad reviews there's all the bad reviews and even the the author who gives his own reviews basically gives it a bad review so it's it's not a loved album but you know i mentioned that this was my first time in the recording studio in june of 87 and so much of that came down to those drawings yeah. I learned so much about arranging and mixing, studying those drawings. My collaborator and I just dug in on those drawings. Like, it's all here. You know, this is everything we need to know. Yeah. So I was very much under the spell, strange as that might be to say, of press to play when I got into Elvis Costello. Um, but I did, again, I didn't know the connection. So when Spike came out, finding out that Elvis and Paul were writing songs together was so exciting. Yeah. And it turned out to... It, it bore out the excitement. Yeah. Great stuff. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, maybe we'll touch on the collaboration as we, as we go through our conversation. But when you were starting to make your own music, what were you taking from Elvis's songwriting into your own work? So, uh, unfortunately, I was very influenced by his singing. <laughs> so, so I definitely, perhaps more Graham Parker than Elvis. Okay. Graham is a, a better singer in some respects. Uh, and Joe Jackson. So these three guys, the singing style there, if you think about that style, they do share a lot in common, this clipped quality and the, the anger, the obvious anger. So I grabbed a lot of the singing style uh, from Elvis and had to unlearn that later to become a good singer, actually. Okay. You can't breathe after every three words, you know. Um, 
But that and, again, the uncompromising density of the lyrics, the fact that there just aren't going to be throwaway lines, that every line is going to have something interesting going on in it. And we're going we're gonna to raise the standards on rhymes. You know, mm. they have to be good rhymes. Even yeah. if they're forced rhymes, they have to be good. They have to really catch the ear and engage the mind. And so I think that raising of standards, but also the melody. We'll be talking a lot today about melody. And this is this is one of the great melodists uh, of, of our time. He's up there with Paul for someone who writes, really knows how to write a tune, a long, flowing, interesting tune. And very few people do that anymore. That's really gone out of fashion in the world. Uh, but that was something I heard in Elvis. And that's the big connection, really, between Elvis and the Beatles, that you're hearing that Beatles influence in the, uh, the melodic um, the, the flowing melodies and twisty, turny, interesting melodies, you know. Hmm. Well, as you say, we're going to hear some of those qualities in the songs that you've picked out for as a great choice of songs as well. Uh, some of your favourite Costello songs that we're going to add on to our playlist. As always, I've asked for five tracks, one from the 70s, one from the 80s, one from the 90s, one from the 2000s, uh, and one from 2010 onwards. The playlist for this season is called Ashtrays of Emotion, and I'll post it at the end of the season on dangerousamusement.co.uk and on Spotify as well. And your first selection, Chris, is the earliest Elvis song that we've had so far, because this one actually predates his debut album. Yeah. So two of the songs on my list are indeed two of my all-time Elvis Costello songs, but some of the other songs are songs that Yes, I like, but I thought they'd be interesting and a little off the beaten path uh, to talk about. And Imagination is a Powerful Deceiver. Uh, that's Flip City. It's the dates, in at least in the Rhino CD, are 74, 75. So that puts Elvis 20, 21 years old, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, two years, you know, before Stiff Records. And I can't believe the size of this gentleman's voice. I mean, this giant baritone comes through and, you know, on the first lines and it sounds, he sounds so mature and he, he sounds so wise. So, you know, that's the first thing that grabs me about the song. So you're trying to make connection. You heard whispers in the hall. She'll be out again this evening. When you come around and call So you dodged the lady killer You came creeping across the floor As you say, recorded with Flip City in Islington in North London around late 74 into 1975 Elvis says in those liner notes It sounds to me now like a very early attempt to write a song like Alison And it does have the trace elements of a lot of themes that we'll become familiar with over the coming years. Trying to believe her a little too much, I'll go out of my mind if I'm losing your touch, all of those lines. Mm -hmm. We will become familiar with that over the uh, the albums that follow. Yes. In terms of the lyrics, there are a few uh, Elvis quirks that are here from the beginning. The one is what I call person confusion. Uh, a lot of Elvis's songs, they're switching between first, second and third person and even different forms of second person. He has a little bit of what I think of as a second person problem, actually. It's a bit of a, <laughs> it's a bit too much of a habit that he, it's, sometimes he has songs that are all third person, except this one line where he just had to 
point his finger at someone and say, you, you know, so he tends to slip back into that. And, and so we're seeing a bit of that confusion about person already in imagination as a powerful deceiver. The other thing that's interesting uh, here is that the, the great rhymes are already starting to show up with circus and curse us. Hmm. And this song is, it's a little bit stream of consciousness. I think it's hard to say exactly who's who in this song, who's the, the victim uh, in this song, but it's clearly one of his early dysfunctional relationship songs. And I find the frequent use of show metaphor that he's talking about circuses, peep show regulations. Uh, a lot of this is about some kind of a show going on. And that seems to go throughout the song. So yeah, uh, that kind of showbiz idea that you're playing a role, that's a very Elvis theme yeah. that we're going to see uh, repeatedly throughout his work. Yeah. You dodge the lady killer who came creeping across the floor, then you get caught up in a whirlwind, you get blown right out the door. Yeah, and I don't know who's, cre who's dodging that lady killer. <laughs> <laughs> is it his potential beloved or is it him? That's what I'm saying. There's person confusion here. Who is the you dodging the lady killer? Is he talking to himself? Why would he be dodging a lazy lady killer? Uh, th there are all these mysteries. You know, Elvis's songs can be so cryptic sometimes. And sometimes it's the best thing about them. In this case, I think he's, you know, he's very early in his career. And I think he's doing a lot of free associating here. Hmm. You, you definitely get a feeling that the song is, as the, you know, the title indicates, about someone deceiving someone and then all the show and acting sort of um, sort of metaphor stuff. But it's a little unclear what the exact theme of it is, other than you wronged me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be continued. <laughs> yeah, to be continued for the next 40 years. <laughs> um, you're holding one of the reissues there. This was released on one the of the, uh, yeah, yeah, the Rhino of uh, My Aim is True. <clears throat> and, you know, we might quibble over some of the decisions on remastering on some of the reissues over the years, but as far as the content is concerned, the unreleased tracks that we get over the years from Elvis, this is an incredibly generous reissue program, isn't it? It really is, yeah. In fact, it rivals Paul, and Elvis is probably one of the few people who rivals Paul in terms of being prolific. Mm. So there really is this much stuff to, to dive into. Yeah. So we get, yeah, an extra CD for each of these rhinos, yeah. and yeah. then it turns out that's not even all of it. You know, there's yeah. a whole realm of, of, uh, of little-known Elvis. Would you have found room on My Aim is True for Imagination as a Powerful Deceiver? Would you have left something off for this? Boy, that's a great question. Because what do you leave off of My Aim is True? Huh? Sne sneaky feelings. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I was thinking maybe watching The Detectives, not because there's anything wrong with that song, but because it is the one that obviously stands out on the album as mm. being a bit different. I wonder if this would fit a little better than watching the detectives yeah is watching the detectives on the british version actually not originally no and then it's okay, been subsequently so added even... to it yeah <laughs> right right i had a feeling there was something off about that yeah yeah so yeah watching the detectives doesn't even belong there so i would just add it why replace the song you, yeah. there's room on my aim is true what is it 35 minutes you could throw one more song on i think it would be great on the album actually i think it would be fine yeah uh, one thing that we didn't note yet about this song is that wonderful moment at the end when he says, at last! 
Yeah. Did you realize he's in there with a band, you know, doing take after take, trying to get one? You know? Yeah. And one of my other favorite bits in the liner notes is that he's saying they're recording this on a seven track. And I was like, well, is that a new machine I've never heard of? No, it's just because the eighth track doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. I read the same thing and thought, immediately thought of the old three track classical recordings and thought, was, <laughs> did they have a seven? I never heard of seven track yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As we move into the 1980s, the song that you've chosen there, am I right in thinking this could be your number one Elvis Costello song of all time? I think it's probably my favorite if, if I were honest about it. Okay. Yeah. Crimes of Paris. Crimes of Paris. Yeah. What a weird song. Musically, it's just beautiful. It's such, we were talking earlier about the ability to write a long melody. And I often play this for my students, for my composition students, because, you know, I ask them these days about melody. What are your favorite melodies? I assume they're going to have a head full of favorite melodies, but melody has so disappeared from the pop music world as a, as a major feature hmm. that they don't really know what I'm talking about even. So I get out Crimes of Paris and a few other songs, say, listen to how long this goes before we really get anything repeating. And we get little repeats, but as far as big repeats, we go all the way through the verse and all the way through the chorus without any major repetitions. Uh, again, little phrases maybe being repeated a few times, but otherwise it's kind of through composed. And this is, you know, I talk all the time on Take It Away. People made fun of me for talking about uh, multi-limbed, uh, multi-phrase uh, mm -hmm. multi limbs, right? Multiple phrase limbs. And this is what I'm talking about, where you get phrase, B phrase, C phrase. D phrase, one after another, each a different form, not a thing just repeating, little pieces within it, of course, repeating or coming back in various ways, but the thing kind of keeps going, it keeps developing, rather than sort of loop around and keep looping. So that's the first thing that I love about the song is that it goes quite a while without a real repetition. We get the, this long verse and the chorus and no repetition. Then we get that amazing bridge that's also its own thing. Yeah. That builds up into that extraordinary sort of sound effect with the oh 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 and the, and the drowning and <laughs> everything coming to a head so musically i think it's it's just beautiful you know there's nothing fancy about it harmonically there are no fancy chords there are no big key changes it's just the twisty turny melody that keeps going that mm -hmm. i that really struck me the other thing about that melody is, and this is something Elvis does a lot that I think is really great, is that the, the melody, you know, if you put it with a different singer and a different arrangement and different words, you just took the tune, it would be quite a sweet melody. Mm, it's quite yeah. a sweet natured kind of beautiful tune, but then he combines it with his quite dry in your face, kind of ugly singing. He does the anything moment where it, we used to say, my friend and I used to say sneezes there apparently. <laughs> He's doing this really aggressive kind of sloppy singing and the band is really, really raw and, and dry, dryly recorded. There's no reverb on the thing. 
almost sounds like they just plugged straight into the board. And so you're combining these mysterious, but obviously fraught lyrics and sort of beautiful, ugly production with this very sweet melody that could be, it's almost uh, could be a 60s sunshine pop melody or something. It's so, it's so pretty. Yeah. So I think that's really interesting. He does a lot of that. I really accidents will happen or, you know, um, Oliver's army. These are all examples of that mm. deceptively beautiful melodies that have dark things happening inside them. Yeah. Know? And the recording style that you talked about, obviously that's all the way through blood and chocolate, isn't it? It's the four it, of them on the ground straight that, you know, there is no separation. Oh. It's just one noise yeah. coming through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I always thought it's, it's as if they just mic the amps and plugged into the mixing board and, there don't seem to be much in the way of effects here, you know, except for the strange things like the, the climax and the bridge of Crimes of Paris. But other than that, yeah, it's so raw and sloppy. Yeah. You know, the singing, the singing is sloppy. He seemed to have really embraced a kind of sloppiness in the singing in 1986 because King of America has, you know, at the end of Our Little Angel, that bizarre place where his voice cracks. Mm -hmm. Our little angel is... You know, very weird that he would just leave the voice crack in like that. So he seemed to at some point embrace having his voice right up front and not worrying about whether it's sloppy or you can you know, hear, hear the phlegm in his throat or whatever. Yeah, it's yeah. very direct and honest. Yeah. So that's the music side of it. Then there are the lyrics. I got some interesting clues from the Elvis.info fact. ElvisCostello.info fact. This is from an email from some. This is really dicey stuff. Huh? Okay. So, but <laughs> is this, this from is the from dark e web, Chris? <laughs> this maybe <laughs> they have crept up from the dark web. It's apparently from an email from a guy who talked to Elvis. So take that okay. for what it's worth. But I find it quite interesting, and I'll even uh, say it's uh, a mad dog rby at aol.com, and he said this. I also asked EC about Primes of Paris. We can all keep guessing because he doesn't know either. He has searched many guides on the origins of slang and common phrases, and he has come up empty himself. He doesn't believe the crimes of Paris have anything to do with the Iliad or to do with Shakespeare's character Paris. His best assumption, this is Elvis making an assumption about his own song. His best assumption is that it derives from a time when the British looked at Paris as a city full of temptation, sin, and general debauchery, and thus the crimes of Paris. Very edifying to find out that nobody knows what the hell it's about. That's including Elvis. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. The proliferation here of person confusion, especially is fantastic. It's just switching from line to line in terms of, uh, in terms of person. So we never know who we're talking to exactly <laughs> and, and who's, and who's being talked about. And always with Elvis, if he's in second person and he's accusing some, some you, it could be himself. Yeah. You is also used as one, as in one did that, you do that. Mm -hmm. So you never know quite what he means uh, with all of that. But the song does have multiple references to Paris, including the, she hit him with the paperweight Eiffel Tower. That's apparently a reference to a Truffaut movie called Confidentially Yours, where a woman hits a man with a paperweight Eiffel Tower. I now think of that, though, as maybe something that's on television in the background while these guys are fighting. You know, mm -hmm. that the crimes of Paris have to do not with Paris, the city, and the Eiffel Tower thing just is a tie in. 
something on television while we're having a domestic dispute. (laughs) And and, uh, the crimes of Paris have to do with temptation and infidelity. Yeah. And yeah. Well, that's a technique is used in a couple of other songs, isn't it? Because in Less Than Zero and in Watching The Detectives, we've got action going on with the TV on in the background. So, Uh, yeah, maybe. That's right. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. I mean, it's just something I'm pulling out to try to to try to take this stream of consciousness, this sort of free association lyric style that he's doing here and make some sense of it. I think, you know, a comment that I made on Now Hear This about armed forces was how you take the songs together, step back a little bit, zoom out a little bit, and you see the pattern. You see that he's gesturing in certain directions, and then you can make sense of it. And I think Crimes of Paris is like that in miniature. It's all these fragments. A friend of mine called it a collage song. Hmm. It's all these fragments maybe taken from different moments in the dissolution of this relationship, just pieced together, perhaps out of order, confusingly, and if you take it in totality, you can see what's going on here. These people are having knockdown, drag out arguments. There's infidelity. Uh, there are various third parties involved. If that makes sense. Third, fourth, and fifth parties involved. I think there's a cigarette girl in sizzle hot pants. That's right. Uh, <laughs> there's a reference to leave my kitten alone. It's, it's just all over the place. But I think it does come together when you step back and look at it as something coherent. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. But I mean, the fact that it's so cryptic and that you can think about it this much is that's a lot of the appeal for it, uh, the appeal of it for me. I heard that you fell for the hell or to Hammersmith blues. What are you talking about, man? That's a great line. Yeah. No idea what it means. And nothing's better than a great line that you don't know what it means, right? <laughs> this is Dangerous Amusements, the podcast that's more like a hand job than a hand jive. On the back of Blood and Chocolate, Elvis takes up the invitation to write some songs with Paul McCartney. Now, you've talked about the collaboration a lot on Take It Away, and I just wanted to get your thoughts really on the songs that got away, the tracks that never made it onto albums, because I remain staggered that neither Elvis or Paul finished off and found room on an album for things like 20 Fine Fingers, I Don't Want to Confess, and particularly Tommy's Coming Home, which is a wonderful song what an amazing song yeah but you know i don't think i'd lament especially in the case of that song tommy's coming home i don't know how much i lament the lack of an official recording you know i i do i was listening to tom doyle and jason cardi both talk a bit about lovers that never were and what a devastating performance that demo is and and how weak the actual off the ground track is how he just completely sucked the life out of it. And I, I don't know how you could improve on the demo of Tommy's Coming Home. It's, it sounds mysteriously like middle period Beatles. Elvis, Elvis really, his voice really actually just merges with Paul's in a funny way. He really does take, take the back seat there and just bring a slight edge to the sound the way John did. Don't want to do that whole Elvis as John thing, but you know what I'm talking about. So it's a haunting demo and I'm, I'm perfectly content with it. I, I think what we're frustrated about is not that we don't have an official recording, but that more people don't know the damn song. What a great song, right? She was counting out the window of an outbound train All the bowls of the telegraph And the rock rhythm in the song of the rails Couldn't make 
the sleeper laugh Down, down, down so deep Down, down, drowning in his sleep Tommy's coming home again I can't help but look at the albums they've each released and think about where songs like this could have gone, particularly with McCartney, I think. Elvis seems to think in units of albums. You know, we saw that with something like Burn Sugar Is So Bitter, for instance, mm. that he's prepared to wait for years, a couple of decades in that case, for the right setting for his songs. Sure. Whereas Paul's approach just seems to be a bit looser, doesn't it? You know, yeah, man, you know, the songs just seem to hang together as an album. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I am surprised that he didn't finish these songs off. You know, you could easily imagine 20 Fine Fingers on Flaming Pie. Leave off a couple of the boring jams right for that one. Oh, and sure. I would take yeah. any of these three songs over anything that's on Driving Rain, for instance. So Agreed. he could have done something, but in the end, we do get these incredible demos of the two of them together. Well, it's such a moment. The demo clearly, clearly captures a moment. In that case, and Lovers That Never Were... I, I don't know about the others. I think there's a, a version of Playboy to a Man that's quite a bit better yeah. than the one. Yeah. But for the most part, um, I'll, I'll take the album versions of these songs. Uh, you know, another Elvis and Paul song that I doesn't get enough love is Back on My Feet. Oh, I, yeah. Is that the first one they released? I think? That would have been, yeah, the B-side of Once Upon a Long Ago in 87, a... yeah. That's right, yeah. And I think that, you know, I first heard it as a, as an extra track on one of those parlophones. I'm blanking yeah. on it, which one it was uh, now, I think. Flowers, I think. Flowers in the Dirt, I yeah. think so, yeah. And I think it's such an interesting song. It's such a, an upbeat, jaunty little tune. I, re I really like that about it. It's really a pop tune, mm -hmm. and I like that. And the lyrics with the framing everything as if it were a movie, I think yeah. that's quite cool. And I always love that explosion of words at the end. I guess that's probably Elvis, but it's at a point in the song where you... You don't need an explosion of words. No. Someone did it anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Normally yeah. that would be a vamp to fade type moment. And here are all these, here's all this imagery still. Yeah, yeah. The, the glorious cinema scope and all those lines, it's isn't it? Cinema scope. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would also mention Veronica as, as a favorite. That was so exciting when it came out. Uh, you know, I was in the middle of my first big Elvis phase and, you know, here he was teaming up with Paul. This was when I found out that he was teaming up with Paul and it was a very rare thing that you heard. I mean, it was Elvis Costello on the radio. You could hear it on the radio. So I actually heard it on the radio before I got the album. And it's just a perfect little song, really gorgeous song, gorgeous production on that. Just love that. That's the best of what Spike has to offer, I think, in terms of the elaborate productions on the album. And uh, what a music video. I remember being thinking it was so brave, like watching it as a teenager and thinking, who would do this? Like this guy with this weird voice and he's just singing, singing along. over the music. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's <a bit> crazy. <laughs> Looking like a rock star too. Boy, he just looks like they dragged a rock star into a, to a rest home and here, <laughs> sing along with your own music, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Outside my window, not long before sleep arrives, they come with their sirens 
And they sweep away all the boys Busy draining the joy from their lives They never said their prayers out loud And while I'm dreaming There's a passing motor car That broadcasts the popular so we move into the 1990s. The song that you've chosen for us from that decade, Chris, from Brutal Youth, released in 1994, London's Brilliant Parade. Yes. So it's not as if I'm a person who knows London. I'm an American. I've been to London once, and that was 27 years ago or something like that. So although I did, I did a lot of wandering on that trip, just walked around, got a little obsessed with the Tate Museum, actually. I kept going back there. Uh, but there was a lot of just wandering around. So I always thought of that when I, when I heard the song, you know, that experience of just walking around London and kind of taking it in. Here's another perfect Elvis melody. Just can't get over how good this is. And it's, you know, it's got everything I want from a melody. It's got the, the long ex extended phrases. It has these great things like where it will end one phrase with a particular gesture and then start the next phrase with that next gesture. Just such craft in the melodic writing and this great little lift, the key change as you go into the little chorus part. So again, great melodic construction with that great middle section as well. That's really great the way it darkens at the end of the middle section to get us back into the verse. So wonderful. The lyrics are really kind of dark he made some comment, uh, I think it's in the Rhino, he says something about it being an affectionate look at his old hometown, but mm. in fact, it's not that affectionate. <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually rather dark. There seem to be uh, illicit things going on in the bridge, or at least questionable things going on in the bridge part, the middle section yeah. part, or at least an implication of that. And then there's that whole verse about someone possibly uh, considering suicide, on the bridge, you'll, you'll never find your answer there. And by the way, that's the one place in the song where he does slip back into first per, or into second person. So he can't help it. He has to have at least one verse in second person, but this time rather than it being accusatory, it's, um, um, he's, it's a consolation to someone apparently. Don't know who he's talking to there exactly. But you know, the great thing about the song is maybe he's just throwing all his favorite street names and place names in, but Part of the fun of the song, even if you're not a person who knows London well, is all of the street names and place names. It really it's, it makes for such lively and interesting lyrics to have all of that happening. And you do get the sense of someone on a kind of journey, on a kind of mental journey. In fact, he wakes up from a dream at one point, I guess, in the song, too. Uh, so he's on this kind of mental journey uh, through his own experiences in the city. And it's... Yeah, it's, it's one of the highlights on a wonderful album. I really think Brutal Youth is an incredible album. And to say it's the best song on that album is actually really saying something. Just look at me, having the time of my life. I'll show them quite like And this is one of the tracks that features all four of the attractions on as well. Bruce playing bass on this one rather than Nick Lowe. Um, oh, yes. Released as a single in the UK where it charted at 48. 
And as you say, he he talks about it being an affectionate look at London, but he said it's a a mixture of reality, of memory, and I think imagination as well. And when he was asked why he hadn't created a video for the single, he said, well, I'd need a million pounds to be able to create what I can see in my head for this song. So, um, yeah, there's a lot going on here. You don't need the video. You've got the imagery. Yeah, absolutely. Chris Roberts at The Melody Maker wrote, there's an embarrassment of wit and waggishness in the tortured vaudeville of London's brilliant parade um yeah fair enough interesting yeah he he did a bbc television interview around the time to promote this as a single and um he was talking about how he was getting younger fans at some of the shows and then he said um so when i'm 70 and touring they'll just be entering middle age and of course (laughs) elvis is closing in on 70 in a couple of years time and as someone who was a teenager in the 90s that has just brought home to me that i am probably officially middle-aged now as well so that was a bit of a hammer blow to rewatch that the other week yeah i gotta get these out now to to read elvis's lyrics so you know (laughs) i I can relate to that i should point out that the brutal youth tour this was the first time i ever saw elvis live it was in Raleigh, North Carolina, Walnut Creek. And I went with my friend, Chris Shaw. And I remember it being the loudest freaking thing I'd ever heard in my life. I remember having a rough time at how loud it was. And I had that same experience when I saw him in San Diego during the When I Was Cruel tour. He was at Symphony Hall. It was so loud. It was really unpleasant. <laughs> and, I wor- and I worried about his hearing. <laughs> I was kind of thinking, okay, I'm going to have to sit here for two hours with my fingers in my ears. And I'm pretty tough when it comes to loud stuff, but this was out of control. So I didn't have the greatest time at the Brutal Youth show, actually, Um, but it was my first time seeing him live. And as I said, the album was a big deal to me Mm -hmm. at the time. We got that one-two punch of Juliet Letters followed by Brutal Youth. And that actually happened in the course of a single school year. I think that was my junior year of college. Mm -hmm. It was my junior year of college. So fall was Juliet Letters. Spring was Brutal Youth, and uh, it felt like an embarrassment of Elvis' riches at the time. I wanted to say also that I really think the 90s for Elvis was quite a golden era. Oh, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe the albums become spottier, but part of that is because the CD era has arrived and everybody's album has to be 70 minutes long. So Mm -hmm. the albums can't be as good. There's going to be filler. But I think if you look at the songs, I think it's his most adventurous period. I think he's trying so many things. It was, as far as the decades go, this was the hardest decade for me to pick one song. I, I could have talked about half the Burt Bacharach album for that matter uh, and things on Juliet Letters. So yeah, uh, really an amazing time for Elvis, the 90s. I think just as good as the 80s. Yeah. And and in many ways, more sophisticated and more adventurous. Mm. Oh, I agree. If I if I ever invite myself on as a guest onto the podcast, the '90s will be my nightmare decade to pick a song for <laughs> for exactly the same reasons. You, I love every record he brought out in the '90s. I also have that personal attachment that this is when I started listening to him as well. So, mm-hmm. "Mighty Like a Rose" was the first record, so I have no objectivity about about that. And then so many good songs on that. Yeah, and then the first contemporaneous album for me was all this useless beauty, and then I agree with you painted from memory is an absolute oh such a great record and then when you fill in with brutal youth and the juliet letters i mean i'm i'm taking every track of every album in the 90s what a decade yeah yeah absolutely uh painted from memory was such a big deal for me i was in graduate school at the time but i stayed home from classes that day <laughs> i went to ta- <laughs> i went to tower and got it and listened to it all day 
And I remember that I had been watching him on the talk shows and he was doing, I still have that other girl. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll get to this Bacharach stuff, but uh, yeah, I could not get enough of, I still have that other girl. And to this day, it, it's, it was hard not to choose that one for this, but I, I think that London's brilliant parade is a, gets into the dense lyrics. And I like that. Cool. Well, just to skip back to the live shows, you start going mm. to see him on Brutal Youth. Um, what about since then and since When I Was Cruel? What's your gig-going uh, adventures been like with Elvis? Yeah, I've seen him five times, I believe, total. And um, I think the one I really enjoyed the most was at Chicago Theatre a few years back. Let's see, National Ransom. He was touring for National Ransom at the time. And he did the Chicago Theater and he had a, a V of seven guitars around him. He sang for two hours, just guitar, just him singing with guitar and changing guitars with his big V of seven. It was super cool. And that show wasn't too loud. <laughs> and, you know, you're just watching the man by himself with all these guitars uh, he's playing, you know, all the songs from National Ransom, which is a wonderful album, of course, one of one of the great later Elvis albums. And that that show just blew me away. And just watching him go for two hours like that all by himself, too, uh, with such high energy. Wow. You know, that that was fantastic. Uh, I did see him do uh, the his Imperial Bedroom tour. Oh, yes. Yeah. Another Chambers. Yeah. Mm hmm. And I thought that was uh, pretty, pretty cool. But yeah, I've seen him a few times. In fact, I'm due to see him again. I, it's about that time, it feels like it. But you know, I had this friend who, he was my ninth grade English teacher. Shout out to Chris Forehand. And he was a, you might call him a first generation Elvis fan. So I have to hear these stories of him seeing Elvis Costello in 78 in Seattle. You know, like he was seeing all Elvis you know, in the early days. And that's amazing to hear about. But yeah, wasn't there for any of that. Started with Brutal Youth. song from the 2000s that you picked out for us, written by Elvis, sung by Anne-Sophie Van Otter. It's a beautiful song, no wonder. So this song is interesting in that it has this dual nature. You have the verses that are very frilly. Uh, they, they seem to be set in some sort of Victorian, uh, some sort of Victorian era environment. And we get these frilly words about, you know, we get petticoats and puddles and we get uh high button boots and uh you know how pale the rose how pale just that latin eight kind of phrasing itself how pale the rose of my complexion so he's going for the really his his frilliest stuff <laughs> and and that can be a problem with elvis when he goes a little too frilly but uh, he's doing that to create this and with the instrumentation as well to create this uh, sort of late 1800s i guess feeling in the verses then the chorus comes and it's like, uh, it's like an early 70s Carpenter's record all of a sudden. In fact, it even, I don't know if it did it on, on purpose, but seems to borrow a phrase from We've Only Just Begun, you know, white place and promises. And here we have uh, 
no need to wonder where that girl has gone. The instrumentation, the vibe, everything about it turns into late 60s, early 70s for the chorus. This is the main thing I love about the song is that we have different tempos and different feelings. And really, if you look at it, even the lyrics have a different writing style. Suddenly in the, ver uh, in the chorus, there is no wonder there. I learned my lesson well, no need to wonder where that girl is gone. very direct mm -hmm. no no high button boots going on there no no <laughs> just straight yeah so i don't know why the song's constructed that way you know if you think about it um late 60s and early 70s psychedelia did involve including the beatles did involve this idea that you write things that are throwbacks mm. that's part of part of the era was to do things like honey pie yeah. and lots of band lots of bands did it it wasn't just the beatles in fact harper's bazaar was like a whole band devoted to that you know to this sort of psychedelic throwback stuff so maybe that's sort of baked in maybe it's the whole thing is a kind of 60s throwback song and that's why the sort of Victorian frilly, as I keep saying, vibe in the verses. I don't know. Maybe those things go naturally together. Mm. Elvis says it's about a woman who gives her love to a man who doesn't deserve it. Released on the 2001 album for the stars, which was credited to and Sophie Van Otter meets Elvis Costello. And Elvis, supposedly a fan of hers after seeing her perform Damnation of Faust in 1989. And then I always remember he picked her performance of Dido's Lament when he did the BBC's uh, Desert Island Discs programme a couple of years later mm. as well. So clearly became an absolute fan of hers. In fact, he said, her voice affected me like no other. And then in typical Elvis fashion, that turns into a full-length project. And an album that I'm, I must confess I hadn't gone back to for a long time until you said you were going to pick No Wonder from it. But I've, I've really enjoyed going back to it, actually. There's some really good songs on here, aren't there? Yes, there are. I mean, it's a, it's a great, uh, a really well curated little set. It's like cool to hear baby plays around on here. That's cool. And junk is a little strange when he gets to that because Elvis is kind of screaming his head off on junk. That's a little awkward. Also on for the, on for the stars, I didn't pick it because of how Elvis kind of comes in and ruins it with the vocal, but I think it's a wonderful song. It's just that he's screeching uh, you know, I do have a little bit of a problem with the way that Anne-Sophie von Otter sings. She's a classical singer, and there's this thing with classical singers. Many of them, perhaps most of them, really can't do pop music. And when I say they can't do it, I mean, they learn those techniques out of their voices. I can, I can remember working with a couple of classical singers and trying to get them to do head voice. Ah, that's head voice, right? It's not falsetto. It's sort of in between. And I'm saying, you know, head voice. And they're saying to me, Chris, we're, we're classical singers. That's what it means to be a classical singer. We don't do head voice, you know? So a lot of the, of the techniques that are, you know, head voice, that's all over pop music, right? So a lot of the techniques we associate with pop music, you learn them out of your technique as a classical singer. And as a result, when they sing popular music, they sound a little odd. And I think she sounds a little odd here, but she has a wonderful voice. I'm not saying that she doesn't have a technically great voice. Mm. I just don't know about her interpretations. You know? mm. Mm. 
Stuart McConey in Q Magazine wrote that he thought this record was better than the Juliet Letters, although his highlights were the interpretations of other people's songs rather than the new ones. And he said of the album, it's all as therapeutically soothing as a sauna, if much, much cooler. Um, which is nice. Okay. And Elvis has performed this song live himself, and I, I saw him do it, and I, I can't remember the gig or the year or the city where I saw him do it. I well, think it was... After 2001. Yeah, absolutely. I think it might have been in Manchester sometime about 15 years ago. There'll be people out there who know instantly when he's performed it live. And I can't quite recall what the arrangement was when he did it. Was this just him and a guitar? Did he have the band with him for doing it as well? But I enjoyed the fact that he went back to it and, and gave it a live performance himself. Yeah, I think actually both these songs are really uh, excellent. No Wonder and For The Stars. And I listened to them both a lot at the time. And yeah, I wanted to pick No Wonder because I just thought it would be off the beaten path a little bit for Elvis. Nobody really talks about these two songs and they're both really good songs. They're, they're good records too, despite the Elvis shrieking a little on for the stars. <laughs> but yeah, so I figured those were a little forgotten, but also that's not a, such a good decade for Elvis in my opinion, not my favorite stuff. I was really, my eyes, in fact, my eyes glaze over on some of these albums, Secret, Profane and Sugarcane. I'm having trouble thinking of any song on that album. Uh, River and Reverse, I think I listened to it three times. I just really checked out during that era. And actually, When I Was Cruel was an album that really disappointed me. Oh, really? Well, it seemed to me, as we were discussing, that in the 90s, Elvis was really on a roll and trying so many things. And, and For the Stars came out, and I heard these two new songs and thought, wow, more, like we're still on this great roll. Then When I Was Cruel seemed to me a, a, a big step back towards straight rock and roll and that's and sort of rootsy rock and roll. And that's kind of what he did the whole decade, right? It's a whole decade of kind of rootsy and, you know, back to rock and roll. So a lot of the adventurous backracky stuff that he was trying in the 90s seemed to go away in mm. the next decade. Mm. Yeah. I think there's some good stuff on that record. I think it's... It's worth digging out and giving another go. Which I think. one? Uh, when I Was Cruel, I think it's a, uh, a fine album. Yeah, yeah. Of the ones I named, it's the one that stays with me the most. Mm. Uh, I do think the title track is fantastic. Yeah. And My Little Blue Window, that's a good song. And But it just seems to me too much of a straight rock album. Um, or it did at the time. Like I said, maybe I should go back and, and revisit these. But at the time, I just thought, oh, no, I wanted more Painted for Memory. And this is like, now he's going back to the late 70s or something. Don't look now Don't you dare I'm not decent Go sit over there Would you rather I was draped in priceless fur Cause there's nothing Else to wear. You want a little bit more painted from memory, Chris? We get it as we come to your final song choice. This category, anything from 2010 up to the present day. And we get a return of the Costello Baccarat collaboration for Don't Look Now. Yeah, how about that? And the song is um, musically, it's written by Burt Baccarat. So we're hearing his music and his piano playing here too, as well, which yeah. is. I, that in itself is very sentimental to me. When I first heard the song, you know, I could tell immediately. I wasn't looking at the credits, but wait, this is Bacharach, you know. I, I know this piano style. 
I know this sound. And so it's 100% Bacharach musically with Elvis having written some very direct and interesting lyrics. Uh, I thought of, I still have that other girl when I heard this because because of the, it's not quite as direct as that song was, but because of the, the simplicity of the words, that uh, they're not, they're not frilly. They're not fussy. They're, uh, they're, they're quite straight. Funny thing. I'm just going to admit to being a bit thick, I think, because the first time, <laughs> the first time, few times I heard it, I had this idea. Maybe I was thinking about Bacharach being 90 and frail, but I had the idea that the song was about an older woman, about an aging woman who was embarrassed about her body. But that's not what it's about. It's actually about a model who's posing for a painter and having this uh, experience of having a bit of a crush on the painter and feeling a bit shy and trying to please him. And so the whole thing is written from a woman's perspective. And that's a thing that Elvis does pretty successfully. Just go ahead. I, I wish more people would do that, actually. Just go ahead and sing the song from a different gender perspective. Why not? You know, mm -hmm. now these songs were uh, this one and the other Bacharach songs. I think both the other Bacharach songs were written for a musical. It was going to be a Bacharach Costello musical. And I guess we're just seeing scenes from that musical. Yeah. This one, I think, is clearer than the other ones. What's mm -hmm. going on? It's a pretty clear scene, despite there being a few odd lines that are kind of hard to interpret. But it's a, a pretty clear scene. Once I got it in my head what the song is actually about, it, it's, it went from being a sad song to kind of a sweet song. I thought it was sad when I first heard it. I guess the music got under my skin, but it's not sad. It's, it's a shy, sweet song. Yeah. Yeah. Recorded with uh, Bacharach and with the imposters released on the album look now in 2018. And yeah, as you rightly say, it's one of a number of songs written from the female perspective and they're all, they're all incredibly empathetic and mm -hmm. quite tender as well. Aren't they on look now? It's a really, it's a really beautifully observed album, I think. Yeah. Oh, it's a wonderful album. It's it's on a par with National Ransom, if maybe maybe better, actually, because it's a bit tighter. Mm -hmm. But yes, this is the thing he does. Now, the first time I remember him doing that, and I'm not sure he's really doing it. Do you know the first verse of Sleep of the Just? The soldier asked my name, and did I come here very often? Well, I hey, thought that he was asking, asking me, me to, to dance. dance. Yeah. And I've never been quite sure whether that's a bit of a joke. The soldier was actually probably accosting me about something. And I thought he was asking me to dance. Actually, he was asking for my papers. Um, I think maybe that's what it is. But I always heard that as one verse written from a female perspective. I think you could read it that way. I'm not sure it is. But that's the first time I remember noticing that in an Elvis song, that there seemed to be a gender shift. Hmm. Yeah, quite, quite good. I wish more people would do it. Hmm. But yeah, the music is sad and wistful. It seems to be looking back. And I guess that's what got under my skin there. It does sound like something that could, you could put, right, put it right on Painted from Memory and it would fit right in. It's really the same musical language. So I guess Bacharach by the late 90s had settled into a certain kind of language uh, that he's stuck with since then. Yeah. Oh, Chris, what a great note to end on. A beautiful song from from Look Now in 2018 and five brilliant choices of songs as you say you, you, there, were, there were loads you could have picked here but I uh, really enjoyed going through those with you so um, yeah. thanks ever so much yeah thank you this was a delight yeah great and I hope well I hope Paul brings another album out so we get another episode of, uh, of Take It Away for you to talk about so I, I hope I can plug Take It Away briefly. you can 
So we've finally finished what we thought of as season four of Take It Away. Uh, after Ryan's passing, Paul Kaminsky, the estimable Paul Kaminsky, stepped in to finish the season out with me. And we're now moving on to season five of Take It Away, which is phase two of Take oh. It Away. So we're going to go somewhere else, actually. And we want it to be a surprise, so I'm not going to say what it is. It ain't that big of a surprise. <laughs> I, I think it's a logical thing for us to do next, but we are doing something else next with Take It Away. We will always continue to cover McCartney on Take It Away. So anything he does, any projects, albums, musicals, if that thing happens, mm -hmm. uh, whatever, we'll always be following that. And we actually have thoughts about future McCartney episodes that would not be albums, but mm -hmm. other topics. But there might be more than Paul going on starting in season five. Oh, we're finally getting the, the Steve Holly podcast to none of us knew we needed. It, it's finally <laughs> happening. Yeah, you know, you guessed it. It's, it's obvious, right? It's obvious. So, <laughs> Oh, brilliant, Chris. Well, we'll really look forward to that. It's such a great show. And it's great that you've got Paul on board now to do that with you as well. So we'll really look yeah, forward to that. And uh, thanks ever so much for coming on. I hope you've had the time of your life or something quite like it. Or something quite like it, indeed. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks so much to Chris for coming on. You won't be surprised to learn. I highly recommend this terrific show, Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. There are plenty of Costello conversations on there for you as well. You'll find Take It Away on all podcast platforms and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And make sure you check out Chris's music. Search on Bandcamp for Mercer, M-E-R-C-E-R. -E Thanks for listening in. If you're enjoying the show, let other people know about it. Leave me a five-star rating and review on Apple. And follow and get in touch with Dangerous Amusements on Twitter and Instagram and at dangerousamusements.co.uk. The theme music for the podcast is performed by Gary Mulcahy. You've been listening to Dangerous Amusements. Go on your merry way now, if you must. <laughs>